I don't want a lot for Christmas, Duncan. No? There is just one thing I need. Don't you care about the presents under the Christmas tree? Not really. I just want people to like, subscribe and leave a five-star review for this podcast. More than you could ever know. Make my dream come true. (laughs) (laughs) Welcome to A Christmassy Pod Too Far. The home of war movies where all the tinsel is real. The presents have been ripped open, the dinner has been eaten, the washing up is soaking in the sink, and it's time to sit by the fire and enjoy a 1940s classic. Perhaps the 1940s classic. I'm Rob Hutton, and after having my heart broken at Paris Railway Station, I've set up a podcast where I'll be sticking my neck out for no one. Joining me is a strange man who will shortly reveal that, in an effort to impress me, He's become a double murderer. Hello, Duncan Weldon. <laughs> Hello, Rob. Rob, are there any women in this podcast? Funny you should ask. Joining us is a woman of fashion and mystery, <laughs> author of great books about movies and her family's refugee history, as well as her latest memoir about anorexia. Of all the podcasts in all the world, she had to walk into ours. Hello, Hadley Freeman. Hello, Robin Duncan. We will always have a pod too far. <laughs> In case anyone hasn't twigged, today we're watching Casablanca. Hadley, how do you feel about Casablanca? Um, Casablanca is one of the few war movies that I can bear to watch because it has no war scenes in it. So it's probably the only movie you guys discuss that I can actually have any strong opinions on. I can see you're a natural fit for our podcast <laughs> straight away. <laughs> I always think of Casablanca as the war movie that Jews love, um, which I do think is true. But I was re-watching it last night ahead of the pod too far. And I noticed that there's actually no reference to Jews in it and no reference to anti-Semitism. And yet it is the war movie that every single Jew adores. And the reason for this is because it's incredibly Jewish. I mean, I I hadn't realized this actually until I was doing the research. The producer is Jewish. Jack Warner of Warner Brothers is Jewish. Halby Wallace is Jewish. Uh, Michael Curtis is Jewish. Uh, the director, um, the writers are all Jewish and there's many of them. Yeah. Possibly a Gentile slips in and is <laughs> writing somewhere. And then the cast are very largely Jewish. So of the 75 actors and actresses who had bit parts of, uh, in, and larger roles in Casablanca, almost all were immigrants. 14 who get a screen credit only, Bogart, Dooley Wilson, who's Sam, and Joy Page were born in America. Yeah. Yeah, and Joy um, Page is Jack Warner's stepdaughter. So she plays the Bulgarian woman who's trying to escape and nearly sleeps with evil Captain Renault. Um, and she herself is clearly, I mean, her character is supposed to be Jewish in the movie, but they never say it. She's just trying to escape the evils of Bulgaria. And uh, Joy Page was half Mexican and half Jewish. So yes, it's a totally Jewish film. And it really made me think of, you know, how those movies in the 1940s that were largely made by minority groups, whether it was gay people or Jews, they could never actually address straight on what the movie's about. It had mm. to all be done in this very coded way. And I think Casablanca is very, very quite uh, obliquely, but obviously coded Jewish. Yes, I, I that had utterly passed me. I mean, I have seen this film. Duncan, how many times have you seen this film? Oh, I must have seen this film 12, 15 times. Yeah, no, and, 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 a lot. Yeah. And this all just clicked in place as you were both talking now. This yeah, completely I, it, passed it, me by. It, it had utterly <laughs> passed me by. I, I, it never occurred to yeah. me. I, I think obviously you're sort of dimly aware that all the European type yeah. people who are trying to trying desperately to get to America have specific reasons. But the, the thing is, lots of people have a reason to want to get away from the Nazis. Mm. If you see what yeah. I mean. So, yeah. so it's you can do that in quite a yeah. in quite a covert way. 
I mean, you say that, that one. You say it's a war film. The, one of the live questions about this is: Is this a war film? When I told somebody we were doing this, uh, she said, "Oh, well, I suppose it's a war film like Die Hard's a Christmas film, you know, because it's <laughs> it's set it, it's set in wartime. It's set at Christmas." And take no, that no, on. No, no, no. Okay, you can't make a film set in December 1941 without it being a war film in many yeah. ways. And you know, it, it's about fleeing. Nazi-occupied Europe. The obvious villain is a Nazi. I mean, you know, I, I don't know. If, I think if you set a film in 1941 and it's got Nazis in it, it's probably <laughs> a war film. Um, and also, it was I hadn't realised this in, in researching for the pod, is that they actually brought the release of the movie ahead of it because they wanted to time it with Operation Torch, which was President Eisenhower's campaign in North Africa. Um, and North Africa being a generally not very covered part of the war story. But it was very much a part of the war story. And it's something I only realised when I was researching the book that Rob very kindly gave a plug to about my family's history during the war. And I found a photo of my great uncle, Alex, who was in the Foreign Legion in France before France became occupied. And it said on the back, Alex in Casablanca. And he was there in his army outfit mm. uh, on a street looking very much like the opening of Casablanca. So it was totally part of the war story, Casablanca, Northern Africa, and people going in and out of this weird little city trying to get somewhere. I mean, I, I would go even further than that. I, I think it is explicitly a film about America not being in the war and having to get into the war. So the the, the line I quoted earlier, if, it, if it's December 1941 in Casablanca, what time is it in New York? The answer to that obviously is, is it, it's late. It's five hours earlier yeah. in New York. I mean, we, we know that. Yeah. That's not what he means. <laughs> <laughs> and in fact, we know within nine days when this film is set because it's obviously... Yeah pre-Pearl Harbor. America is not yet at war with... Yeah, um, uh, Rick is still in neutral. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, it, so America is about to wake up, yeah. as it were. Rick is going through his own inner battle between does he stick his neck out for no one or does he uh, get into the war? Yeah. So the film comes from a play, an unproduced play called Everybody Comes to Rick's, which has the good fortune, the script arrives at the Warner studio the day after Pearl Harbor. And there's a really good question. whether Some it really ar- good work by the agent there. <laughs> <laughs> if it had arrived six months earlier, yeah. would anyone have bought it? And it sells for $20,000, which is the most that anyone has at that stage in Hollywood has ever paid for an unproduced yeah. theatre script. Because, you know, Warners want to make films about the war. Yeah, featuring Americans. Featuring yeah. Americans. <laughs> and, they, and actually, Jack Warner... <laughs> None of these people are universally nice people, and I'm not. I'm. I'm not going to stand up for Jack Warner as a great human being necessarily. But Jack Warner on being anti-Nazi is dead on sound. Uh, he's. I mean, in fact, he helps to get Michael Curtis's mother out of. Is it Austria or Germany? I, I, wherever she is, just before the war, he knows exactly what America faces, and if, for him. It's, it is absolutely clear that this is an existential fight between good and evil, and he thinks that he thinks that before Pearl Harbor. So there, there is a way that only Warner Brothers could have made this film. You know, Paramount wouldn't have made this film yeah. in this yeah. way. So I will die on the hill that this is a war film. Although Google <laughs> describes it as a romance. <laughs> I also think it's interesting in that it's very much a kind of Jewish refugee 
uh, experience yeah. of the war. You know, whereas you have something like Sound of Music, which is everyone sort of in their country is quite safe. They're in Austria or they explicitly leave. And they're the good people, Captain Von Trapp ripping up the swastika flag, and the bad people, the Nazis trying to take him off to the Third Reich. In Casablanca, things are way more confused. There's suddenly this huge wash of immigrants just roaming around the world. Nobody really knows where anyone's from. It's never explicitly said where any of these, what country any of these people are from, except the poor Bulgarian woman. And there's much less delineation between who is actually good and evil. Obviously, they're the Nazis who are bad. But then you have someone like Captain Reno, who is schmoozing with the Nazis and sleeping with desperate refugee women, but also ultimately on the side of good. And you have Rick, who's doing his studiously, you know, I'm neutral, I don't stick my net out for anybody kind of pose thing. But obviously, he is ultimately on the side of good. Things are a lot more blurry. And I would just suggest that that is a lot more European Jewish immigrants experience, where suddenly their countries were in upheaval. People who seemed good were suddenly bad. People who seemed bad might be helpful. And when I watched the movie, I watched it, I'll be honest, I actually watched it on a plane and was crying my eyes out because it really reminded <laughs> me, not because of Elsa and Rick, who I actually find a kind of irrelevant detail in the movie, but it really reminded me again, and I'm not going to keep going on about him, but my great uncle Alex. And my great uncle Alex had been, it was born in Poland along with my grandmother and their two brothers. And they went to Paris um, after World War One to escape the pogroms. And first, Alex was in the Foreign Legion, and he went down to Casablanca and fought in Norway. And then, of course, France was occupied, and his family was sent off to the camps. And Alex was himself arrested, um, but escaped from the train. And he was hidden by a member of the Vichy government, which seems insane. Mm. This Polish mm. Jewish immigrant, why is he being hidden by someone in the Vichy government? And at first, I thought when I started researching him, that it must must mean that he was actually, you know, a traitor and was turning in Jews. But in fact, things were just much more complicated in Vichy France than I realized. It wasn't that Vichy France was all entirely pro-Nazi. Some people were. There were people in the Vichy government like Louis Pelopois and stuff who were just pro-Nazi and hated Jews. And then there were these older generals who just wanted to protect what they called the sanctity of France. So they didn't want loads of random, but you know, dirty refugees, as they would have called them, turning up and changing the nature of France. But nor did they want France to be Nazi. They definitely didn't want France to become Germany. Yeah. And so there were some members of the Vichy government who were actually helping Jewish refugees who had been in the Foreign Legion at the beginning of the war because they saw them as great patriots. And that is what happened to my great uncle Alex. And after the war ended and these weird weird old Vichy generals were on trial, Alex testified in defense of them. Like, this is a man who lost his brother in Auschwitz, who had been in the resistance, who, mm. you know, hated the Nazis all his life, and yet he was testifying in defense of people in the Vichy government. That, I think, Casablanca really captures well. You know, Captain Reno, complicated figure, ultimately on the side of good. Same with so, Rick. So, I mean, hardly as humorous to say, I, I will say House of Glass, um, her book about all of this is excellent. And I, I know that there are people who listen to this who are sort of, who, who like books about the war. Um, <laughs> it, it, the, the, thing that I, the thing that I really enjoyed reading it, and actually the reason why I wanted to get Hadley on to talk about this, is that I, I, I feel like we, we talk a lot about, as it were, the military experience. We talk a lot about the experience of our grandfathers yeah. broadly. Um, in wartime, and there's there are several other groups of people who are not our grandfathers. There are, for instance, women, and there's there's quite a lot of stuff about women in Britain and the the, the British female experience during the war. But the whole sort of refugee experience, the that I didn't know that much about, and I found House of Glass sort of eye opening just on on all of the contradictions of, of this. Again, when Duncan and I watch sort of more actiony 
films. It, we do tend to sort of to look at this through the lens of, I guess, what is it to be a man and what is it to be a man at a, at a time of war? What is it like to watch it from a refugee heritage? Because your grandmother flees Paris before the war? I think she's she's got out of Paris in a... Well, you, you tell us. <laughs> so what happened was my grandmother was living in the Marais, which was the Jewish ghetto at that point, really, of Paris with her mother. And one day her uh, big brother, Alex, came home and said, "I've met, here's my great friend, this American called Bill, who I've secretly known for years and yet strangely never mentioned. And he is actually a millionaire who lives in New York and he's coming here for dinner. And this American walks into the apartment and he falls in love with my grandmother, who is very beautiful, straight away and offers to marry her. And Bill says to my grandmother, and this is 1936, you need to go. This guy's a millionaire. He lives on Park Avenue. He's been my friend for years. You know, you'll have a great life. And my grandmother, who was engaged to a a socialist dentist in Paris, very tearfully (laughs) and regretfully goes. Because Alex also says to her, look, the Nazis are coming. We know what they've done in Poland. If you go, you can get the rest of us out. Socialist dentist boy can't do that. I I mean, (laughs) what can you do with one of those? Um, And so my grandmother very tearfully goes. And when she arrives in New York and this American bill meets her at um, the docks, she realizes that that Alex didn't know him. He'd literally met him on the street that day, that he was not a millionaire. He ran a gas station. He didn't even live in New York City. He lived on Long Island. And Alex had just And done no qualifications in dentistry, presumably. None. And not even a socialist. Um, <laughs> but Alex knew what was going to happen. And he thought this was the only way to get my grandmother out of Paris, was to just marry her off. And that's quite a similar situation in some ways to Elsa, is that she has absolutely no power. Like, the only thing she can do is choose which man to be with. Is she going to stay in Casablanca with Rick? Or is she going to go off and be the first lady of Czechoslovakia with Victor. And she just kind of follows whoever she's with around. And in some ways, that makes her a quite passive, boring character. But in other ways, that is very revealing of what women were doing. That, you know, there were a few women in the resistance, very, but very, very few. To a large extent, the only thing, the only power they had was choosing who to marry. I mean, even Maria in The Sound of Music, all she has is Captain Von Trapp and just follows him up the mountains. Um, uh, <laughs> And the other reason this movie speaks to me in particular is that um, my great uncle Alex had a total Victor Laszlo moment exactly the same year that this movie came out in 1942. So Alex um, was uh, in Cannes. He'd escaped over the demarcation line. He went out to a nightclub one night, like Rick's, called the Pam Pam in Cannes. And some Nazis came in. Before, it was just the Italians in uh, Cannes. And as Alex said to me later, that was fine. It just meant there were more pizzas than croissants in the cafe. (laughs) Suddenly, the Germans arrive and things obviously deteriorate pretty quickly. Um, And the orchestra and the pam-pam starts playing German music, just like in Rick's Cafe. And Alex, who is incredibly belligerent, mouthy, only five foot tall Polish Jew, thumps down on his table, stands up and, and says, stop playing this German four-letter word, play La Marseillaise. And he hadn't seen Casablanca. It's like, I don't even know if Casablanca had come out yet. And immediately, of course, the Nazis arrest him and put him on the train. Um, and then he escapes and is hidden by a member of the Vichy government. So it's, it is a very Casablanca story in a strange sort of way. The genesis of the play is Murray Burnett, who is an American Jew, um, goes to Europe uh, before the war. And uh, there is a great book called Round Up the Usual Suspects that that is just an amazing history of Casablanca. <laughs> and if people want to know about Casablanca, they should read that. Um, he, he basically, he goes to Europe and he sees what's happening. And 
the, the book says he went to Austria as an American. He came back to America as a Jew. And he goes to see sort of family members and he just realises the absolute horror of what's going on. And he wants to write about it. He's a teacher, but he's also a playwright. And uh, in the south of France, a few weeks later, Burnett made a nuisance of himself. I was screaming, do you know what's going on? Finally, when people saw me coming, they walked away. One night he went to a nightclub with a polyglot clientele where a black man played the piano. Burnett whispered to his wife, what a setting for a play. <laughs> so he writes it with Joan Allison. Um, the weird thing is that nobody, nobody involved in the making of this film thinks it's a great film. Um, and certainly when they're making it. So sort of Warner sort of thinking this is a necessary film. Yeah, yeah so that, no, they're, know, happy, no, they're, yeah, they're happy yeah. to have it. They paid yeah. for the script, but yeah. they're, you know, they don't think we're making yeah. something that, you know... Despite that the is cast to, and... Yeah, well, Bergman is very keen. Bergman is, Bergman is keen yeah. to be cast for something else. She's desperately yeah. worried that she will never get to make another film, so she's quite... She's she's keen to be in it, but really she's worrying about her next job and whether she's got mm. the next gig that that she thinks is going to be the thing that's going to make her yeah. name. Humphrey Bogart is please. He's just sort of become a star. He spent ten years being a bad guy. He's yeah. sort of he's a guy who it's everybody there's different versions of this, but basically he always got shot in the last reel. Somebody <laughs> would say to him, "Get him!" and uh, and and they suddenly re- they realise that the Maltese Falcon yeah. that actually this guy is a star. Um, but nobody thinks this is a, a great film. The, the actors have had a terrible time, partly because they keep being rewrites on the, the script. They, the writers can't quite work out how to make the final scene work. There's a yeah. myth that there are different endings where Ilsa stays. And yeah. in, every, in every scripted ending, Ilsa is always leaving with Laszlo. That's, with, the, with the production code, they couldn't have a woman leaving with a man who, who wasn't her husband anyway. And they all sort of agreed that that had to be what it looked like, but they also yeah. couldn't work out yeah, how to how to yeah. make that work? So, uh, so they've all had a miserable time. Everyone who's working with Michael Curtis always has a miserable time, <laughs> apparently. <laughs> um, yeah, so so nobody quite grasps that this is that this is going to be a hit, but almost instantly it is. And the other themes about it is: is this a romance or is this actually a, a bromance? <laughs> You know, it's interesting, like for ages, you know, I as a kid, I associated Casablanca with something my dad watched. And I only became interested in it with When Harry Met Sally, because there's that amazing scene when the two of them are in bed on different screens, both watching Casablanca. And then they have this debate about whether Elsa was right or wrong to leave with Victor. And Harry says, you know, she would not leave with that boring diplomat guy. Obviously, you stay with Humphrey Bogart, have amazing sex with Humphrey Bogart. And Sally says, um, are you insane? No woman would do that. Of course, she's getting on the plane with, you know, becoming the first lady of Czechoslovakia. And I think Nora Ephron gets this so right because every man I know thinks Humphrey Bogart is the sexy one and Victor the boring one. And there's even that scene in the film where Captain Renault goes, if I was a woman, I would fall in love with Rick. And I just always think when I see that, yes, because Rick is who men think they should be. This kind of sarcastic, (laughs) detached, chain-smoking drunkard. Basically, that's who men think is cool. And women are looking at this. (laughs) Rob got in there before I could. (laughs) And women are looking at this going, this is Victor Lazo, like this famous resistance fighter, you know, who stayed with her in Marseille when she was sick, who went to a <laughs> concentration camp for his beliefs. And what makes the movie even more male 
perspective dominated, if that's even a way of putting it, it's written by three men, is that the scene when Elsa goes to see Rick and it looks like they're going to get back together happens directly after Victor has his orchestra moment in Rick's, i.e. when Victor is at his most sexy, his most (laughs) cool, and Rick is just standing there doing little half nods, being basically a passive, boring old drunk. Um, The idea that, you know, Victor's wife would see how her husband changed the mood in Rick's, a metaphor, of course, for how he can change the mood in Europe, and be like, you know what, I'm going to stay with this guy in Casablanca. It's just not going to happen. he is hot. Well, we, we will, we will, we will come to that scene. I, I'm astonished to hear you say because I literally, I, I, in my notes, watching this film several times, mm. as I have in the last week, I keep finding the words "he's so cool." <laughs> so, none of these are scenes that Victor Laszlo appears in. So, <laughs> I think Rick is a sort of is a proto flawed male hero. I think you see him in a load of Harrison Ford characters. He's he's Han Solo, <laughs> isn't yeah. he? Yeah. You know, yeah. he's he's in the Jones. He's, he Han pretend- Solo with a jazz bar. I mean, yes. <laughs> Basically, it's the bar scene in Star Wars with all the yeah. aliens hanging out. But that is Rick's. But, um, but they, 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 yeah, you know, he pretends he doesn't care. He pretends he's not interested. But really, um, uh, and, and, and it's actually, and in the end, he does the right thing. It's, I mean, well, it's, it's set up all the right, all yeah. the way through. It, yeah. it, 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 Captain Renault keeps saying, "No, <laughs> yeah. you're romantic. You're going to do the right yeah. thing." You know. Um, I think you, part you, of you ra- the thing with Rick, though, is that the char- the person he's originally based on is a real person called Billy Rose, and Billy Rose was in fact Jewish. I think that is actually the truth about Rick. But obviously, they couldn't have him be Jewish because, first of all, they're not going to have like a Jewish hero in 1942, and Humphrey Bogart wasn't Jewish. So I think that's kind of almost where it's sort of inex- unexplained about Rick. I don't know how they wrote him in the play, but the real guy was was a Jewish guy in New York. He was Fanny Bryce's husband. Um, right. I didn't know that. I know that in, in the play, Ilsa is, Ilsa is quite slutty in the play. <laughs> uh, <laughs> she basically she, in the in the play she doesn't have the excuse in Paris that she didn't know her husband was alive and and she basically goes to bed with Rick the moment the moment that she finds out that he's in Casablanca too. Uh, I mean you know look it's a it's the modern world and I'm I'm not but you, you 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 literally weren't allowed to put this in Hollywood films though were you at the time. No, they, sort of and, and they, and they, they have to send all, everything yeah. off to what's called the Hayes Commission. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and the Hayes Commission comments on the script come back, you know, we're a bit worried yeah. about all this stuff in Paris. Yeah. Um, anything that implies that they might have slept together in Paris, a bit worried about the fact that, that uh, you know, that, that, that she's, she's seeing this man while her husband is alive and there's yeah. a sort of, well, look, she doesn't know her husband's alive. We have to make that yeah. really clear. So there's... Yeah. Does, stringent she, moral guidance string, in cinema. Stringent moral guidance, yes. Yeah. That's a, that, I mean, the other the other big theme of it is isolationism. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And, and again, it sort of actually, I think that the script is so well written that you don't mind yeah. the fact that there are there are several lines in it. You know, Renault says, I think you'll find, Rick, that isolationism is not a policy you can adopt in the modern world. Yeah. You know, and <laughs> and it, it, literally, that's, that's a bit on the nose, but, but it's fine. <laughs> you know, yeah, I mean, it's very, I, <laughs> it's just obvious that Rick's is, a meta- I, Rick's is obviously a metaphor for Casablanca, but Rick himself is a metaphor for America. I mean, that's just obvious. And the film itself becomes a metaphor for the war. Because like you say, so many of the people in it, their families were all in concentration camps while it was being made, yeah. which is just insane to think of. Like, I think the, the worst story is 
poor um, S.Z. Sakal, who plays the waiter Carl, his mm. three sisters were at that moment all in concentration camps and they all died. Um, you know, the writers, Philip and Julius Epstein, these Jewish twins, like they had family who were, who were in Europe. Uh, Michael Curtis, as you say, just escaped by the sort of skin of his teeth in the 1920s. Um, Major Strasser, Conrad Veidt, he had a Jewish father. Uh, Peter Lore, who plays Ugarte, is obviously Jewish with Jewish family. Like They were all very much knew what was happening. And I think that must give a weird tone to the film. The other thing that always surprised me when I see the movie is how little Peter Lore is actually in it. He's killed off yes. in the first scene. <laughs> I mean, I always think of him as one of the stars. And then you're like, oh, wait, he's gone. He's actually dead now after scene one. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I loved this film. I loved this film... I can't remember when I started loving it. I had the poster on my wall as a teen, partly because, and I'm sorry, Hadley, I just thought Humphrey Bogart looked so cool. Because <laughs> you're a man, did, Rob. It's because you're I, a man. It's sort of, I, it's, 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 the poster, there's a fantastic poster oh. with Bogart in a trench coat with yeah. a gun, which actually is not very much of the film. It's slightly misleading about the film. I remember seeing yeah. this in HMV or Tower Records and yeah. thinking, that's going on my wall. <laughs> You know that's that's who I. <laughs> that's who I will be one day. <laughs> well, that's who I. That's the dream. You know who. <laughs> Let's go to the after action report. So. Quick, Dad, they're on the cable car. The the premise of this, Hadley, normally is that we have to pick, you know, the scene we want to be called in for. And the problem is that if you don't call me in for the start of this film, you're dead to me. <laughs> I, I, but I think there are there are basically sort of six scenes and we can just attempt to rate them, I suppose. And, and I mean, everything yeah. about this film is great. All the script is great. Um, but... I, I am skipping the opening introduction to Casablanca sequence, which I think is amazing. Yeah. Which has something I hadn't realised about the film until sort of watching it and really thinking about it. The way it flicks back between tragedy and comedy. Yeah. So you have a man shot and the next scene is the pickpocket. Vultures, vultures <laughs> yeah. everywhere, which is, you know, it's got comic relief. The, yeah. guy, the guy is still warm. Yeah. You know, he's still bleeding over there and yeah. we're back to comedy. And you get that back again and again. Yeah. Through the film, you get these these sort of little moments of comic relief, and then something awful happens. Yeah. Uh, so I would say the first one is a scene I've loosely called Ugarty's arrest, which sort of covers meet Rick, uh, establish his relationship with Reno up to uh, when they come for me, Rick. I you know yeah. <laughs> uh, thoughts, feelings. I mean, it works. It, 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 we we get, can't get, just say yeah, it no, works. No, no, you, you get it. You get it. Well, this is the problem with this film because throughout this film, everything just works. But no, it's a, it's like a almost a drop straight in introduction to Rick and Renner, who I, I I think are the two most interesting characters in some way. And I'm sorry, I'm doing Rob's thing about everyone wants to be Rick, but I also think Renner <laughs> is just a fantastic character. Yeah, totally. So and the two of them have the best dialogue. Quite, yeah. So I. Almost go further than this. I think Ilsa may be the least interesting. 100%. 100%. She is the most boring with the least interesting dialogue. That's the and truth. I, yeah. I think Bergman slightly felt that. One of Bergman's difficulties with this film was that, you know, it, it made her a star and she didn't enjoy making it and she didn't think much of her character. Yeah. Um, Bogart had a nice line about becoming a sex symbol. He said, look, any man when Ingrid Bergman looks at him becomes a sex symbol. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the other poor problem for Ingrid Bergman is that the man who plays her husband in it, Paul Henry, was not very nice to her <laughs> throughout the whole movie and thought she was terrible and Bogart was a hack. 
Oh. Yeah, no, he's, he's, I mean, his quotes are fantastic. I've got some of his quotes. For later. <laughs> well, he, I think he felt that this film ruined him because he thought he was on his way to being a leading man. And there's a school of thought that he made a terrible mistake in agreeing to be the... I mean, he's not technically the man that is left because yeah. he does get the girl, but he's sort of also... He is very much... Yeah. The man, he is, he is the B choice. Yeah. I, I, or, or, well, Hadley, Hadley can disagree with this one. <laughs> but he, he felt that this, that this would sort of establish him as the guy who would be left on the tarmac. Yeah. I think um, that is uh, delusional, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> to well, be honest. <laughs> I mean, the fact is he did manage to negotiate getting top billing with Bogart and Bergman. And when you see the opening credits now, you think, Bogart, Bergman, Henry? <laughs> who? <laughs> Who's that? Um, and there's loads of other way more famous people in it. Sydney Greenstreet, Peter Laurie. They somehow overcame the terrible pain of being second, third, fourth billing to Bogart mm. and Bergman, and their careers didn't suffer. So I think that is delusional of Henry to think to blame this movie for his disappointing career. But the, yeah, but Ugarty, who is yeah, Peter Laurie. Who is he's in, he's in this for two scenes. Yeah. yeah, he's and he just walks away with it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, again, he looks yeah. great on the poster, but but if you if you stop people in the street and said how how many how much is he? Well, I, I, possibly if you stop people in the street, <laughs> it, um, I think if you stop people coming out of the cinema, yeah, and said how much is Peter Laurie in it, they'd think he's he he somehow. People going into the cinema, maybe. If they were coming out of the cinema, they I might be more he, aware. I think he's in your mind. <laughs> he's I, totally he's just, in your mind. My my next scene is Enter Laszlo. Meet the Laszlos. Again, you've got all this <laughs> lovely dialogue. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, uh, you've got the you've got the relationship between Sam and Ilsa, and there's so much done there with just with looks. Yeah. yeah. Um, it, it's a it's a, there are script writing masterclasses on this. My next scene is Paris, and what. British film critic Dillis Powell, who I think is the queen of all of this, described at the time as a pretty boring love affair. Yes, I yes. agree with Dillis Powell on that one. <laughs> well, this is because of our strict moral guidance, isn't it? I mean, like you've I, had to. You've, I mean, it, it is. It's hard to watch it and not realise they are obviously sleeping together. Yes, but it is never explicitly <laughs> said. And yeah, so if you're it, making it, yeah, it now, yeah. I, I think somebody else said this. If you're making it now, you you cut upstairs and they're having something pretty steamy going yeah. on. But but <laughs> instead, it, it yes, and and I mean, actually, is how much smoldering tension is there between Bogart and Bergman? I I don't. I think compared to say Bogart and Bacall in To Have and Have Not mm. a couple of years later, where you know the celluloid is on fire. <laughs> but, um, yes, I but. Let me read you what Heinrich had to say about the the um the Paris scenes and uh, Mr. Bogey was nobody he said a few months before his death <laughs> before Casablanca he was nobody <laughs> Bogart was a mediocre actor he was so sorry for himself in Casablanca Unfortunately, Michael Curtis was not a director of actors. He was a director of effects. He was first rate at that, but he could not tell Bogart he should not play like a crybaby. <laughs> it was God. embarrassing, I thought, when I looked at the rushes. And I, I've got to say, the, I'm, I'm, I'm slightly ambivalent on Paris. If, if, you, if I had to yeah, cut yeah. five minutes, I would cut Paris. I but agree. Bogart crying on the train. Bogart 
crying. Yeah. Also, yeah. when he angrily crumples the letter. That's yeah. the only interesting bit in the whole of Paris, I think. Otherwise, it's just the two of them being soppy in brasseries. I, I find <laughs> that whole background stuff so totally superfluous. And if I was remaking Casablanca, which obviously I wouldn't because I'm not insane, I would cut out the Paris scenes. Like, we get it. We get what was happening. Yeah. They were together yeah. in Paris. Is that yeah. my heart beating or is it the guns? <laughs> I, I, actually, my wife was watching in the background and she laughed out loud at that point. I think, I think we've talked about what a great script it is. That is that yeah. you can cut that line. Yeah. <laughs> the singing. The singing's the best bit. The singing, I think the singing is the best scene. Yeah. I think I just if you can watch that without tears in your eyes. Mm-hmm. You know, if you can watch it frankly without standing to attention. Yeah. Um although do you they it's the Germans you'll like this Duncan the Germans are singing the wrong song. Are they? Oh yeah, really? They um they're singing uh, Watch on the Rhine which they which was actually out of favor with the Nazis. Um, they should have been singing the Horst, the Horst oh, yeah, Vessel song, yeah. of course, but the copyright to Horst Vessel was controlled by a German publisher. And if Warner Brothers used the film, they would be able to show it in countries at war with Germany, yeah. but they would not be able to show it in neutral countries. Also, um, that singing scene, it also really emphasises what you said earlier, Rob, is that most of this cast isn't American. Like, they're all, you know, they're basically all French and German and Austrian and a few Poles and, and Bulgarians and other people in that mix. Um, and that's part of what makes that scene so so beautiful. And none of the Americans in the in the cast, um, mainly Humphrey Bogart and uh, Dooley Wilson, are singing that scene. It's a scene that's entirely sung by Europeans. So it's like this battle for Europe you know, being done by Europeans. Yeah. It's, uh, yes. Then there is the scene where Ilsa comes to see Rick, which again, in a weird way, Bergman has this line, I kiss Bogart, I never knew him. Uh, she didn't really get on with Bogart. Bogart felt awkward because she's taller than he is, and so he has to stand on on blocks. <laughs> Everyone um, was taller than him, though. Yeah, yeah. well, he's... Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> also, that's another scene where you think, obviously, they've just slept together, right? I mean, cause, except they then make this pointed cutaway to Ilsa just sitting on the sofa in a very tightly buttoned up blouse. Yeah. But what else are they doing up there in the <laughs> office? Just like catching up. Obviously, like, she went there to sleep with him. Yeah, no, it, it, Elsa and Rick, I mean, it's you've got to have it. It's yeah. fine, but I don't think it's memorable. And then what I'm calling the airport, which I think yeah. goes <laughs> goes to, starts a little bit earlier. It's it only quite late in production. I mean, this is a, there's all this stuff about rewrites. They only realise quite late in production that they need to finish it at the airport. Because I presume the play is just set. The in, play is just set at Rick's. In, in Rick's, yeah. Everybody does, in fact, come to Rick's yes. in the play. And yeah. that's how most of the shooting scripts look. Yeah. And then they sort of, they realise that they need to do it at the airport there are no planes because it's the war, and so it's a cardboard plane, and they put they they make it with fog or plywood <laughs> plane to make it make it look a bit more realistic. If you had to pick a scene, we're picking the singing, aren't we? Yes, we're picking, we're picking the singing. I mean, the airport is fantastic. Yeah, yeah. the airport is also fantastic. You know what? I don't understand about the airport, and you guys will have to explain this to me. I don't understand why Rick tells Laszlo, "Your wife came to see me last night and pretended to be in love with me." Like, what is the point of him saying that? Laszlo doesn't know any of that, and then Laszlo has to think, "Okay, now I know my wife just slept with him twenty four hours ago, and now we're getting on a plane together to America." Brilliant. Something to talk about. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm prepared to listen to the argument. Rick might not be a perfect hum- a perfect uh, example of uh, my kind. Um, but I think the point is, I mean, again, they sort of they, they they spend a lot of time trying to work out how to nail this ending and how to make it plausible. And and actually, the sort of the thing that makes it plausible that wouldn't necessarily have made it so plausible a year or two, five years earlier, if you'd just done this as a a, a not war romance mm-hmm. is that the whole thing is about sacrifice. Yeah, the problems of three people don't amount to a hill of beans. Look, Hollywood has been making 
films about the problems of of, of three, three people, people for <laughs> 20 years at this point and, yeah. and making them into a big deal. Yeah. And now suddenly you're saying, look, I know you're in love, but actually there are bigger things. Yeah. To an audience to whom you're saying, look, I know you're in love, but he has to go off and fight now. Yeah. Um, you know, so it's a... It it is it is an it is a story of sacrifice in a, in an atmosphere of sacrifice. Um, let me tell you quickly about the Irish and German cuts. Uh, Ireland has a tricky war um, and bans Casablanca because <clears throat> it, it portrays uh, Vichy France and Nazi Germany in quotes a sinister light. <laughs> Ireland's wartime history is yeah, a Ireland's source of such fascination to me. Uh, passed with cuts in 1945 after after the war ends. The, cut, the cuts are about are about Ilsa and Rick referring to their love affair. Um, but better is uh, the German cut. Uh, Warner Brothers released a heavily edited version of Casablanca in West Germany in 1952. All scenes with Nazis were removed. Wow. <laughs> along along with most references to World War Two. <laughs> Victor Laszlo was no longer a resistance fighter who had escaped from a Nazi concentration camp. Instead, he was a Norwegian atomic physicist being pursued by Interpol after he broke out of jail. The West, <laughs> the, the West German version was 25 minutes shorter than the original cut. Only I mean, 25? I, I really want to see it now. Yeah, no. <laughs> In 1975, the Germans got to see the original, the original version. Um... She's not so dumb. There are women in this yeah, film. Yeah, there are. There are. Ilsa is the least interesting of them. I think Yvonne is fantastic. Yeah, Yvonne is good. Um, and, she, and she was also the last person in the film to have died. She's the longest living cast member. So in the end, she got one over Rick. Yeah. She didn't die. <laughs> she gets great because of dialogue, you know, where were you last night? Will yeah. I see you tonight? All of that. Um, and, and she gets redemption. She gets yeah. redemption in the singing song. Yeah. Yes, the casualty list. The body, movie body count is three. Three? If you count Ugarty. Yeah. Want to make a play for the best death? Well, I, uh, Ugarty, surely. Yeah. Except, we, except we don't see Ugarty die. You see, but I agree, actually. It uh, overshadows the movie. Yeah. It, it's it's, it's the, the, the free Frenchman at the beginning. Yeah. Yes. I also like. That works yeah. really well. And Strasser at the end. But yeah. um, no, I mean, I, 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 I went for Ugarty. Yeah. Kula King and Wolf are the most gratuitous American character. That's fine. Yeah, Rick's, yeah. the whole point is about American neutrality. Yeah. Um, best meme... Well, there are. This is a film of this actual a film, memes. A film, a film of memes. <laughs> I want to give it to Shocked Shocked. Yeah, I think it has to be. I, that's yeah. the one you see most often. Yes, I, think, I agree. Probably. Um, nastiest Nazi? Strasser. 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 It's interesting the way that early on Renault is playing for that. Yes, you know, I love it when mm. he adjusts his tie when uh, yeah. the yeah. woman re- so, refugee comes to see him. You know, this is a man who's who's doing, yeah, you yeah. know, who's, who's exploiting women and also Ugarty's death. Just yeah. we haven't decided how he died yet. Yeah. You know, but the Dan Buster's Dog Prize for the most problematic moment. There is one. Is there? It's very controversial. Go on. Um, among the young people. It's when uh, Bergman asks about the boy who's playing the piano. Oh, I see. Oh. And there is also that bit when uh, Sidney Greenstreet, the owner of the Blue Parrot, tries to buy Sam. And, yeah. uh, and I think it could be giving him a job, yeah, but I don't buy or sell people. That's mainly to give Humphrey Bogart the line to establish mm-hmm. that he doesn't buy or sell people. Yeah, that, he, that Sam's you know, his friend, basically. Yeah. But yes, yeah. the that's, boy. And that's more true. friendship. That's true. And actually, the, I think the thing you have to say in defence of the boy who's playing a piano is that, that this is a film made not long after... Gone with the wind. Right. Those are Hollywood. You know, yeah. that is the attitude in America. Yeah, 
And it is a film in which there is a strong and explicit friendship of equals. Yes. Between Rick and Sam. Let's go. Let's drive all night. We'll get drunk. We'll go fishing. Yes, that's true. Yeah. I think you can defend the character of Sam and it's quite it's quite progressive. And Sam, Sam is Rick's friend and he's looking out yeah. for him. Again, Loose Lips, um, <laughs> the award for best lines, there are too many, too many. best lines. Captain Raynor, um, I think, kind of walks away with a few of them, though. Yeah. yeah. In the sense that it inspired another great film, Round Up the Usual Suspects. Yeah. Of course. Is, and, you know, and delivers the plot twist. Yeah. Because the final bit of the plot is how are we, how, what are we going to, yeah. what's going to happen to Bogey? And <laughs> that's the moment when Renault comes good. Did you know that um, this is the beginning of a beautiful friendships not in the shooting script? Oh, really? No. Who added Hal that Wallace, in? Hal Wallace sort of adds yeah. it afterwards. Uh, after they've made the film, gets Bogart to come back and record it. <laughs> and played, um, played again, Sam's a misquote, isn't yes, it? Yes, played yeah. it, Sam. Yes. Yeah. If she yes. can stand it, I can. Yeah. Um, the Broadsword Radio, talk to us about Letters to Transit, because I don't understand why these... Uh, my big problem with this film yeah. is... Why are two pieces of paper signed by Charles de Gaulle any good at all? Right, so two things. One, sort of the letters of transit thing is just a sort of a MacGuffin made up by the yeah. screenwriters. But secondly, <laughs> it's not de Gaulle. Now, the idea that de Gaulle would have any weight in... Right, exactly. De Gaulle's mad. in London. Right, de Gaulle. He doesn't say de Gaulle. He says Wegand, uh, who's the French governor of North Africa. In the English... If you watch it with subtitles... In it says, England, it says de Gaulle. Apparently, if you oh. watch the French version, it says Wegend. Having learned this, I went back and listened again. He says Wegend. It's hard with the accent, but... Because um, I watched the subtitles to check. Yes. Because I thought, what does he say? Yes. And it said de Gaulle, and I thought, bizarre. Yeah, it's Wegend. Right, okay. Um, but if you watch the French version with subtitles, it will say Wegend if you put French subtitles on. Judgment at Nuremberg. How many war crimes are committed here, do we think? I mean... It, uh, the whole Vichy France thing is, I, I mean, Vichy France is, it is complicated. And actually, the, the, mm. the lovely scene with Laszlo and Strasser yeah. sort of actually sets out quite well yeah. the weird yeah. Yeah. dynamics of who's in charge and yeah. who's not in charge. Is this your order? Well, let's say it's my request, yeah. you know. Mm. Duncan. Is this the operation that changed the course of World War Two? No. <laughs> Unless you want to see it as a complicated analogy for American entry into the war. I'm not opposed to that, actually. In which case, yes, Casablanca <laughs> changed the course this of World War This is the II. metaphor yeah. that changed the course of World War II. Yeah. <laughs> or can we say that Casablanca encouraged American support of Americans' entry into World War Two? It is definitely offered up. It's, it's listed as a propaganda film, which I always find yeah. slightly offensive. But I, but you know, it absolutely you're supposed to come out of the cinema and buy war bonds or yeah. <laughs> send send a young man off to get shot. Yeah. I mean, I feel that everyone knows the answer to this, but worth dying for. How does this stand up? It's on repeat? It, 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 it is an absolutely fantastic film. How did you feel last night watching it again? I was Adley? honestly sobbing, sobbing my <laughs> eyes out about it. Um, I find it so moving. This it's, it's really a depiction of Europe, even though it's set in Northern Africa, which is what makes it so sad. And just how everybody is, doesn't, everybody's at such a loss. Everyone's roaming around and everyone's scared. I, I find it an incredibly beautiful and sad film. Casablanca. Thank you, Hadley Freeman. Thank you, my very own uh, Bogart and Captain Renault. <laughs> Thank you. We're now going to argue about which one is which. And so, as we put Hadley on a plane to Lisbon, and Duncan and I set off in search of the nearest free French garrison, we bring this season of A Pod Too Far to a close. Thanks to everyone who's got in touch on Twitter, Blue Sky and Threads at Pod Too Far, or who's emailed podtoofar at gmail.com with film tips and suggestions. 
Rob, I think this could be the beginning of a beautiful podcast. And it could be. We're hoping to be back very soon in the new year. <laughs> Thanks, everyone. Thank you, Hadley. Thank you, guys. Thank <laughs> you.